here. There was, a, there was another piece here. I don't believe this, man. I, I, I really don't believe it. There's going to be an army out there, man. Where were we? Eat, sir. Have you guys ever been so mad at a character? Like, just what are you doing, dude? <laughs> I was trying I, to think of an example of another character. Is it like I the, feel like uh, I'm similarly mad at the the line cook in Heat when he quits his job. <laughs> I was uh, like, no, dude, you can't do that. <laughs> By Michael Mann, who had an uncredited writing credit on Spring Time. Oh, yes, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, so that's what we'll get to at the end of the show, near the end of the show. Um, But uh, introduce us, Dan, because I always mess up the tagline. Oh, Film Trace is a podcast where we trace the life of film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. It is our Stranger Than Fiction cycle. We are on episode five, the 1970s, uh, and we're serving up two films for you based on a true story, uh, Dog Day Afternoon from 1975 and Straight Time from 1978. Uh, And who's our guest we have with us? Chris, go for it. Welcome, Riley, back to the pod. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. Yes. You were on, uh, what was the last episode you were on? You were on the... Was uh, like tw- 20, 28 Days, days later, later, yeah. 20 Days Later. Classic. <laughs> and uh, you're known for doing uh, like directorial uh, filmography watches. And right. did our revisitation of 28 Days Later have any role in you deciding to focus on Danny Boyle as one of your filmographies this year? Uh, I wish I could say yes, but no, I, I plan these out <laughs> several years, if I'm being honest. I planned these out several years in advance, so uh, no, no, it That's did not. <laughs> in fact, if anything, you probably shied me away from uh, um, I, say, I will say, though, that I just watched it again recently because I am, again, doing the Danny Boyle watch, and there were things that I that came up in our discussion that you know I, I saw and paid a different kind mm-hmm. of attention to this we, watch uh, so that was you're saying film trace helped you uh, helped illuminate the film for you is what you're saying absolutely you're saying. there you are exactly yeah. yes. you had a you had an extra lens by which to <laughs> you, can, you can blurb me on that perfect, perfect. we'll, we'll put on, on the dvd the cover. VHS box <laughs> okay um, what do we got dog day afternoon what's our yeah. uh sydney lumet what do we got going on with him what's our personal baggage slash history with Sydney, with this movie, I'll start. Uh, I've never Go. seen it before. Wait, what the fuck? Before. You picked yeah. this? Yeah, no. Uh, that's why I picked it because I'd never seen it before. Incredibly famous movie. Uh, I think growing up, I've heard of this movie constantly. Um, and yeah, it's just one of those movies that I wanted to check out. Uh, perfect fits perfectly into our uh, Stranger Than Fiction cycle. Um, I'm trying to think of like the other Sydney Lumet movies that I have seen. Serpico, I liked a lot. 12, 12 Angry Men's awesome. Uh, I love Network. Network's probably one of my yeah. favorite movies. Um, but yeah, so kind of like uh, not a huge history uh, with the movie, a little bit of history with Sydney. Uh, what about you guys? What do you guys, what's going on with you? I'll, I'll, I'll let the guests go and I'll, I'll tap it, top it off. Uh, well, (laughs) uh, yeah, I'd seen, I'd seen this film once before, maybe about 10 years ago. Um, haven't seen a lot of his other work. I mean, 12 angry men network also, um, 
I'm seeing. Did he do the before the devil knows you're dead? I did not. Yes. Know that he, yes. Okay. Yeah, so like I've seen that. Film, I yeah. Think. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, not a big history with this director. Um, I did see, like I said, I saw this film a while ago. I did enjoy it, so I was interested to see how it held up for me in the rewatch. And yeah. I'll leave you hanging. <laughs> sure, of course. Um, yeah, I, I've loved him for uh, a long time, to be honest. And uh, I actually taught Dog Day Afternoon for the first time last semester because I have a uh, like a biopic um, unit, and uh, it, it, you know we kind of focus not just on like the traditional formulaic biopic, but just based on a true stories in general uh, movies where the protagonist is based on a you know a a real person and um uh i i had you know i had gotten sick of teaching uh you know can't believe i'm saying it but i i had been teaching goodfellas in that unit for such a long time (laughs) and i i I just kindly wanted finally wanted to be like i want to try something else also goodfellas just like so long that it takes up so much of the curriculum time Mm -hmm. anyways uh and and i was a little worried because obviously it's older um but uh high schoolers loved it they were super into it they were like just i could see that glued to the screen like and i you know i i often show movies that result in at least half of the class like checking their phones um so i was i was really pleased with that and uh uh and this is like one of my like shortest periods between uh rewatches so obviously i watched it with my class um just a uh, you know, half a year ago and then watched it again for the the episode. Um, but I'd also seen it at least half a dozen times before I, it was definitely one of the movies, uh, rewatched. I like bought like a used VHS <laughs> at like a giant, like, uh, video retailer, used video retailer, um, back when I was like 15. Um, and just solely based on the fact that like they had a huge sale and it was one of those movies that I knew was famous and it involved Al Pacino and crime. So I was like, yeah, this is no, <laughs> no brainer. Throw it in the, throw it in the cart for five bucks. Um, so yeah, so I've been, I've been pretty obsessed with this movie and Sidney Lumet in general, uh, 12 angry men. Um, you know, we, did you read that? And we, Dan and I went to high school together. You, did you read that in high school? um i don't think so no no dan did you yeah oh yeah definitely oh, okay good yeah. yeah so so we, you we watched the movie in high school too after we yeah, read it yeah it was, that's the first time i saw it yeah yeah okay so like from the get-go like in high school was also when i started like paying attention to directors mm-hmm. and um and so like i knew at that point that like he had done not only 12 and good men but also uh dog day and then serpico was another big one yeah um uh, for me, like later in high school and then, uh, network, like you mentioned, and, uh, we almost covered this movie on our last cycle, uh, that Lumet did called Equus, um, yep. about the boy and the horse, uh, mm-hmm. also based on a play like 12 angry men. Um, and then we also did a former, uh, episode of film trace about a Sydney Lumet movie. Do you know which one, Dan? Death trap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, um, and then, you know, that, that's not as, that's not upper echelon uh, when no, it comes to Sydney you know, Lumet, but it's still, a, as they say. uh, I, yeah, it's still, I think it's a fun one. I think yeah, it's, it's fun. interesting. It's fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then, and, but then like his, after that and the, the verdict came out the same year, yeah. um, his career kind of, uh, 
<laughs> when well, went off a, a cliff. Long, a long career. He said yes. he did like what fifty films or something. So you right. know he he kind of like faded as as some directors do at an older age. Yeah, and he also has a book um, that's a pretty notable when it comes to like books by oh, directors yeah. called Making Movies, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. and that's a that's a mainstay on my bookshelf at in my classroom. Um, it's a really great read. Uh, he's a he he's definitely like a journeyman type of guy, yeah. and but it's interesting because like he he both like fits the mold of like those kind of seventies directors without a lot of like the pretentious air of like <laughs> Coppola or Scorsese. Um, yeah. He's not like the archer. No, he's not like, right. Exactly. Know. So, and it's, it's just, a, there's lots of fun stories in there, including about dog day afternoon. So I'm excited to get into it. Uh, I might, um, I, I'd be curious to hear, can we start with, we, I, maybe we, before we get into opinions and takeaways, uh, the true story behind it, right. That's how we mm-hmm. have been starting these episodes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's all true, basically. <laughs> Every single detail. Well, it's interesting. So it's all based on um, a Life magazine article that came out, I think, right near, maybe a month after the bank robbery. So this bank robbery did happen in Brooklyn, August 1972. Um, and it kind of, if you kind of go to the facts, the movie does follow it pretty darn co- closely. Um, the young guy who we see run off in the beginning, that happened in real life. He was caught two days later. Um, the way that it plays out. Now, a lot of the sort of media part of it and the circus part of it, that seems to be played up a bit in the movie. There certainly was a crowd there and stuff like that, and the media was involved. But I don't. it didn't seem like it was uh, as a circus-like atmosphere as the movie makes mm-hmm. it seem to be. Um, but yeah, and eventually they go to the airport. And um, Al Pacino's character in real life, I can't even pronounce his name, John Wojewitz, I want to say, um, he survives and Salvatore uh, gets shot. Uh, he doesn't get shot in the head, he gets shot in the chest. Uh, so that's one difference. And the FBI guy, I think he pulled the gun from the floor, not from a f- false panel on the side of the car. That being said, for the most part, uh, pretty accurate, including the part where uh, it is revealed that John, the the real life character, uh, is doing this uh, to help pay for his lover's sex reassignment surgery, which is all part of the sort of true story yeah. uh, around this this whole thing. And that's the, so, the outdated term, right? Gender reassignment surgery. Gender reassignment surgery. I apologize. Yeah. Um, so that's what it was referred to at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah. So I think for the most part, it's kind of I don't know. Did you guys find anything that like? totally took a lot of liberties with it i don't know um, it seems pretty straight down the middle i guess i i mean i have some thoughts because go for it. maybe because i had a longer relationship with the film but you go first riley well yeah i don't know probably the the real story uh well enough to compare one something that i wondered about though is um i don't know if you is it the stockholm syndrome i mean like mm, yeah. the, they clearly um Grew to like Sonny, especially, and uh, it's almost like they're kind of pulling for him as the movie goes on with a little hiccup once they uh, find out part of the reason that he's doing it for. It seems like there's some judgment going on there, not unexpectedly in the 1970s, but um, for the most part, it seems like they really connect (laughs) with him and his everyman type of vibes and uh, to the point where they're even kind of fighting back against the police 
um, throughout the whole ordeal. So I was wondering yeah. how, how much that was played up or how much that actually happened in that situation. I guess I don't, I don't know for sure, but it was an inter- interesting aspect of the film. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely people that know way more about this. There, there's been entire documentaries uh, and um, nonfiction books about this single incident. Um, but uh, some of the things that have stood out to me over the years um, probably first and foremost is Pacino's performance. Um, he's so good at getting you to empathize um, with Sonny uh, and all those other factors surrounding him from the hostages, you know, you could argue Stockholm syndrome versus like just the kind of uh, anti-establishment um, vibe of the mm-hmm. decade that we're t- that we're in right now um the the 1970s but the kind of big piece that i feel is missing and if they included it you could argue it would make it a worse film and that sydney lumet was smart for not diving too far into it and he was very much kind of part of that naturalist movement of crime films in the seventies where he, he didn't want to give away too much, right? He wanted to show yeah. instead of tell. And it all takes place during one day um, in a single setting, which adds to not only the, the tension and suspense and kind of grit of the film, but also uh, makes it easy to ignore a lot of the details that happen outside of that mm-hmm. uh, single day. And so like the, it, you know, it doesn't take too much Googling about the guy uh, that Al Pacino's playing here, uh, real name John Wojanowicz, or however you say it, Wojanowicz. Um But the kind of the biggest thing that just like would completely change anyone's reading of the film, yeah. uh, no matter how empathetic Pacino and Louet make him seem, is uh, there was a third guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, helping them with the bank, the attempted bank robbery, mm-hmm. and he uh, ran away um, before uh, it became clear that they were surrounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and this third guy, his name was Robert Westenberg. Um, the night before the robbery, the three of them, along with Sal, uh, shared a hotel room, and Wojtowicz, um raped Westenberg. Mm. and he admits it in multiple pieces of media, including a documentary about Wojtowicz, um, where he's heavily featured in front-facing interviews um, while in prison. And he, he, he retells the rape in a way that is pretty awful. And like this, this is a, this is a bad person. <laughs> um, he, he's, yeah. he's not the genial bank robber fuck the man kind of rebel that we that that we see in the film yeah (laughs) yeah so that's that's huge to me i think Mm -hmm. um even if it even if like you said dan i think it still remains true what we see on screen is pretty i you know identical at least in the history books of what happened that day yeah yeah, like if you look i'm looking at the life article right now Mm -hmm. it's like it's almost like cindy looked at this article and like cast people based on like the photos i mean (laughs) albacino looks just like this guy 
like just like him. And in fact, I think I read somewhere, I think it was an AFI that one of the reasons that he got involved is like a, sip, a script supervisor, even before there was a director saw a home video of John's wedding and yes. then said, well, why you look like Al Pacino? I mean, like, it's like, that was a whole thing. So yeah, that's a really, really strong point. And it goes to, in terms of like the, the outside context or the paratext of a film like this is that you're right. We see a single day of this guy's life. Mm-hmm. And in that day, he's the anti-hero. He's the Attica, 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 you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's rallying up these people. And But I think I would say the truth is, like, you know, um, it's tough. I mean, I, I wonder if even Sydney knew any of I mean, did any of that stuff come out when this was happening? You also have to, like, we have to think about, like, how much was John actually involved in this, right? Yeah. In the film itself. It's like, I don't really know the answer to that, but I do know... I was reading somewhere that um, crazily he ended up um, paying for his partner's gender. Um, what's the appropriate term? Gender change surgery? Gender reassignment surgery. Gender reassignment. Or no, no, surgery. no. Sorry. And now that I say that out loud, it's uh, isn't it gender confirmation surgery now? Gender. Okay, gender confirmation surgery. He ended up pays. He ends up paying for that via the movie rights that he sold to this. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like. There's so many layers here of um, complication and sort of intertwined closeness to the reality that it's like, uh, it's tough to even make a film about something like this and not be wrong. And like really wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like uh, the fact that this movie is so famous and so well-regarded, like six Academy nominations, one for best original screenplay. Um, it kind of gives it a little bit of a Teflon-ness to it where, you know, when we look at it, we try to criticize it. It's, you know, people are be like, well, that may be true, but did Sydney know about that? Or did the screenplay know? You know what I mean? How it can get like, um, get really defensive really quickly. Of course. Uh, like a movie like this. I don't know. I mean, that's my take on it. And and we have these several decades since yeah. to like the, the, the life of the film, like Lumet's dead. So like how much can you, really poke holes in it in a way that like says that straight up quote Lumet, you know, exploited the scenario and fantasized it or like rose colored glasses. It, um, one other la- last thing. And then I would, I I'm curious cause uh, uh, like me, Riley had seen it several years ago and then saw it again recently. So I'd be curious to see how it's changed during the interim for you. Last thing I'll say in terms of like the the worrisome stuff is uh, Wojtowicz also um, wrote an unpublished letter to the New York Times yeah. uh, upon the release of the film, and he says in the letter, and once again, this is a he, this is a bad dude um, who is saying this, uh, but he claimed in that letter that he had an agreement in writing for one percent of the net profits and a verbal agreement for two percent of the gross from the movie. So yes, the, the that's what kind of the 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 money thing that gets in so much more of the uh, press and historicizing about the film is about him, like using the selling of the rights to pay for his second wife's surgery. Um, But, you know, he also says that like there was a lot of wheeling and dealing with producers and he goes on in his letter to say, 
uh, that quote, exploitation is a dirty word, but I have been exploited as well um, as my family and friends have. Right, right, right. It's like and, he's you know, I, playing both he, sides of the coin. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's messy, just like all of the films in our series here have been. But well, this curious. one's especially messy. Like yeah. this one, because it was made so soon after right. the robbery. Two and a half he was years. still in prison, I think. Uh, yeah. I didn't get out until 87. Right. So, yeah, this one's messy as hell. Riley, Riley, what's your take on all this? Well, well, I didn't know anything about, I guess, the character. Or John, that's his real name? John? Yeah. John, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know his backstory beyond what was on the screen, so I'm still processing all that, I guess. But, uh, and I guess it kind of feeds into, I feel like I've heard Chris offer his thesis on this entire cycle about... Yeah. How, how can this, how can based on a true story not exploit? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's ultimately what's going, going to happen. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard. I mean, there's a whole like philosophical discussion to have about, can you appreciate the film for what it is, regardless of what Lumet knew or didn't know at the time or what kind of profit was made and by whom and when and for what and in what way. And I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think the movie overall still works as it is for me. I mean, I, I was just as riveted this time watching it, knowing everything, you know, that's going to happen. And it kind of almost more so <laughs> watching it unfold as a tragedy, because you know that is how it's going to end. I, I yeah. didn't the first time. I didn't know anything about it the first time I watched it. Um, so, I mean, it still works as a great, uh, piece of cinema for me. Um, the question that I have is like, it is compelling. And what if, what if this is a movie that's put on screen without any of the baggage of it being real? I mean, is it, is it a double-edged sword here? Like, is this compelling, more compelling because it was a true story or is it, would it, I mean, and, but that also kind of, maybe wrecks the watch for some people or most people in some ways because of the backstory that we now know about the central character. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I don't know. Mm, that's a really, that's, that's a tough one to wrestle with. Can you go first, Dan? Cause I'm, oh, I'm wrestling with it. Yeah, I have yeah, strong yeah. opinions. Jump in. Jump uh, in. There's no reason this needs to be based on true story. <laughs> like there's like zero like the value of this film and the way that it was shot and the way that it was done is honestly almost mostly in like the craftsmanship of it the acting's unbelievably good pacino's off the charts john Cazale's unbelievable as he is in the fine films that he was in um you know the writing i think th there's things that about it that i like uh, the the one thing that as someone who had never seen it before and has seen it for the first time as a 40 year old with all this sort of praise behind it. The one thing that I was um, perplexed by um, was that it's a really good gritty crime film with phenomenal acting and really tight um, editing and a great script. But there's to me, like the weird thing about it is like, it's kind of a genre film in the sense that like mm -hmm. it's really good B movie material and it's elevated by a great cast and a great director and all these amazing people who have worked on films for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
it, it doesn't really go beyond that for me. Um, so like the real, uh, the true story aspect of this, you know, and we're also incredibly far removed from the true story, right? And the people who actually lived through this and were a part of it. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't, you know, for, if it, if anything, the true story aspects of this really take away from the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just my viewpoint of it now, but I'm yeah. so far removed from it. You know what I mean? The, the only argument that I've been able to come up with while you've been talking, Dan, is, mm. um, and it's com- it, it, just like everything else about this film is complicated, is that I think it was a really big uh, flashpoint for uh, LGBTQ rights. Yeah. Um, but it has that added layer of, yes, it was one of the only films mainstream films anyways at the time uh to just like outwardly have a gay protagonist Mm -hmm. but on the flip side your gay protagonist is a criminal uh and so that but i don't i don't know how regardless of like the duality of that or the you know uh, harm that that perhaps also propagates about the LGBTQ community in a time where that community is not very visible um, due to discrimination, homophobia, and transphobia. Um, but also, like, the fact that that has a basis in reality kind of helps that. Like, it's not just somebody... Like it's not Brian De Palma dressed to kill, like coming up with a fictional, you know, gay slasher or so like anything aut- like that. Authenticity to it, right? Right. Yeah. Like, and also it adds to the whole vibe that is changed for the film or heightened for the film to show that kind of damn the man mentality, because it's not just like, uh, you know that you know showing you know the the horrors of capitalism and uh like working class versus high upper class or like average person versus law enforcement but it also is very much like straight up like uh nobody you know nobody's going to help me be who i am or be let my wife be who she is so mm-hmm. i'm going to take thing take matters into my own hands um but uh, I don't know. I think that. So yeah, I actually think more so than maybe. I, yeah, maybe I'm going to come at loggerheads with you, Dan. Uh, yeah, I think nice. I I'm think more so it. than any other film in this cycle, it matters that this one was based on a true story. Interesting. Hmm. Riley, what do you think? What is your what's your sort of take on that? Well, yeah, you posed the question. You better damn yeah. answer it. Well. <laughs> I think I think what I'm hung up on is that I mean you you could do they could have done like a law and order treatment of this you know like rip from the headlines but change <laughs> yeah, sure. all of the you know necessary <laughs> mo, you know mold it to fit what you want it to do um, which obviously there's always some degree going on but the the st- the true life story is very interesting and. I, <laughs> What they chose to leave, well, I shouldn't say chose. We don't know that he chose to leave out those details about John or Sonny. But 
that's that is where it becomes problematic because those details are problematic but also the omission of those details is problematic whether or not you know we knew about them <laughs> going into making the film but I, I think the story is 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 itself very interesting i'm just i'm just sticking strictly to the story thing not the bigger picture like what this means in the world and to the world for the story to be told but just that it's an interesting story and i'm i'm hung up on whether or not that's respons- responsible to, to, to just tell the story. As a, view, as a viewer, just, to be just like, because it's me, interesting. Yeah. Let me separate these two. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it is tough, but I think, you know, um, at the end of the day, I, my mind and all this stuff is like, art is not reality. It's just not right. Like in any attempt for it to reflect reality is going to be a failure. Um, there's just not a lot of crossover. Like it's, you know, it's a very, it's a made up story. Technically, no matter if someone wrote all this stuff down, it's someone interpreting what somebody wrote down from someone else's perspective. It's like so far removed from what actually happened in terms of just reality that is like, look, it's just a movie at the end of the day. And it's like the strength of it is in its own sort of messaging and narrative that it creates for itself, its connection to some real story. I don't know. To me, it's mostly irrelevant. It just doesn't, (laughs) it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, the the only thing I would say is that like, yeah, if you're um, using the reality of this situation in a way that is trying to, you know, and I'm sure that they did this. So I'm sort of going to talk back on it a bit <laughs> based on a true story, inspired by a true story. That's marketing bullshit. It's all marketing bullshit. And it's any time that's ever said, it's all complete bullshit for the most part. Um, because at the end of the day, when you're making a piece of art, it's not going to, it's not going to be, uh, it's not a news report, right? It's just not. Um, but if you walk that line, like they did here, you can kind of get people to think that it is. And I'm sure people want to go see this thinking, oh, this is real. This is what really happened, right? Um, but it's still a movie at the end of the day. It's still well, made up. You know, it's I, still a work of fiction. So Yeah, I mean, this this goes back to the whole Fargo thing of, yeah. like, what mm-hmm. the words say at the beginning of the film. Um, what does it say in the beginning of Fargo? Oh, well, you know, Cohen brothers decided to be funny to say <laughs> it's based on a true story when yeah. it's not. Doesn't um, the and that, Project do that too? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting that Dog Day Afternoon, uh, here, I find, I found it good. Uh, it, it, it doesn't say, I think the word, I don't know, now we're getting into semantics, but <laughs> I don't, I don't want to excite you too much, it. Dan. But, uh, <laughs> whereas most movies use the, you know, the word based on, yeah. um, Dog Day Afternoon's opening title says, what you are about to see is true. It happened on Brooklyn, New York, in Brooklyn, New York, on August 22nd, 1972. Yeah, of course. Of course it says that. So it's... uh, That's even more problematic, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's entirely problematic, yeah. So the point is that, like, the true story part of all this is always marketing. It's always a marketing technique. Well, and is that the problem? Like, is is yeah? They just didn't say anything. What if? But what if they just didn't say anything? Like, what if we didn't have that any kind of notice at the beginning of any movie that's quote unquote based on actual events or whatever Mm -hmm. they want to say? Just drop that. What is? Oh yeah, you could. Yeah, you totally could. But they're, you know, they're not going to because they want to make money. Uh, 
But I mean, isn't that apparently, f- like, philosophically, like, we're all socialists here, right? Like, that's... Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> that what is... Uh, that that feels... that There's something about that that feels ethically wrong. Oh, I mean, come... You're... <laughs> you see, if you go down that line, it's like, why even release a movie for money at all? Why don't you just... You know, it's... Everything is tied <laughs> up in the capitalist system. There's no escape. <laughs> there's no escape. But I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is this, very specifically... The based on a true story thing is only there to get people in the door, right? Once they're in the door and they're watching it, it's a film. It is separate from like, they're going to, they're in a dark theater. When they saw this, they paid like what? Five cents to see it. I don't know what tickets cost back then. <laughs> they're like a movie theater. And so it's this like Nickelodeon. Is that <laughs> going to a storefront and see a talkie? <laughs> and they're in the theater and they're watching and they're experiencing this film, this movie the i don't know to me the reality of whatever happened uh, no matter how much they try to tie it to it no matter how much they try to market to it, it it's severely separated from that and that's just the way that i see it. and i think that's also how people experience it if they say otherwise even if they say otherwise because at the end of the day they're they're not they're not seeing the real story play out you know what i mean does that make mm. any sense you, no, you you're you're talking nonsense. You're justifying your no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it, it, it makes sense. I just I wanna be more I wanna be morally superior to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well it's art, it can't be. Art has no morality. It doesn't exist. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> oh man. What else do I want to say about Dog Day Afternoon? I feel like we're we're just I, I meant to say this earlier when we opened the conversation about the hostages and Stockholm syndrome. Um, one of the reasons that that interplay works so well with yeah. the women working at the bank and Al Pacino is that like Al Pacino, like couch surfed on those actresses <laughs> in those actresses homes <laughs> while he was like, try, like in, in the early seventies and late sixties. So like what, like before the Godfather, really? So, so they knew him as like they had like they had kind of all been surrogate not all I think like three of them were like including Carol Kane um, were like surrogate mothers to him um, during his rise in Hollywood. So I think oh. that that really helps that kind of um, uh, dynamic between those characters. Um, and then I also think that uh, obviously. With John Cazale, here's the, here's one bit about uh, that the real Sal um, that didn't make it into the film, and I think there's you know probably artistic reasons that could justify not really giving him a motive versus uh, uh, Sonny, um, but the real Sal Natural, uh, he he was motivated by trying to get his two younger sisters out of the foster care system. Um, And he, like he, he was also just like, he was a a disturbed person. Not sure how like any kind of bank robbery result would help, you know, having two younger sisters years old in reality. Right. Yeah. John Gazzali was 39 when he shot this. Yeah. Mm. And he was, and that was the thing. It was like, uh, uh, Sidney Lumet didn't want him for the part, right? Until yeah. Al Pacino convinced uh, con- convinced him to let him read. And it's like, you, if you convince anybody to watch John Cazale for more than thirty seconds, they're going to say yes <laughs> to whatever the guy wants, right? Wasn't there a wasn't there a, a moment? 
I don't know. It's almost like a throwaway moment. Didn't they have like a pact? If it didn't, if they didn't get mm. out, they weren't going to get out alive. Did I make that up, yes. or was there a moment in there where they said that that was the end? Like, especially from Sal's perspective, or was yes, Sal was very fatalistic, mm-hmm. extremely fatalistic, right? But I don't, um, I don't, I don't remember that exact moment though. Oh, yeah, I, I feel, like, I feel like it's there was like, some a line. It's it's like alluded to without being said directly. Okay, like like it's like a look he gives him and he says something like "You promised." Oh, yeah. what is that? No, I I, I something totally like that. that. Yeah, okay. Well, here's one thing that I didn't understand on first watch: is Al Pacino John here? Uh, is he playing along with the FBI at all? I feel like there's some weird sort of facial stuff back and forth between him and the FBI guy where the FBI guy's kind of warning him, you know, you have your chance to get out. You have the chance to get out. Uh, I don't know. Did I misread some of that? Like it, when the FBI guy comes in once it's nighttime? Yeah. There's like this, this, uh, this sort of these exchanges between him and Al Pacino that almost seem like Pacino's kind of um, considering what the FBI guy is saying almost. Maybe not fully, but like little tinges of it. I don't know. That's kind of what I run into. Like he's having a lot of doubt about what he's doing and what why why he's even doing it. Maybe he should just sort of go along with what they want to do. I don't know. I, I mean, I definitely that, that that's part of the magic of Pacino's performance. Yeah, right? yeah. The, there's like a he, doubt there. Mm-hmm. There is a there's a long simmering doubt. There's uh you know kind of a long simmering like self loathing, and yeah, I think I, that that's one of the things that just like the, the film in general. Like you could read into so many yeah. different moments oh, in that yeah. film. And come away with something different. Yeah. But that, I mean, that reminds me that like one of the, that's one of the th- reasons the film was so interesting to to show to my students because the discussion afterwards resulted in like so many different takeaways on yeah. whether or not you know um, uh, Sal really like one of my students had like a theory that like Sal was was Sonny's hostage. Like it seemed like he was. You know that like Sonny had some kind of leverage on him. Like, why wouldn't Sal just? He was very quiet. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's teenager wisdom, but still, it's interesting. I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I think uh, I, what um, my la- the, the last thing for real this time sure, sure, sure. is like uh, going back to the Met as a director, and yes, he's a journeyman, and yes, he's got he had, like lots of ups and downs and a very varied career on yeah. purpose. Um, but it comes, I think one of the things that brings Dog Day Afternoon back into the conversation, linking his films with, linking the best of his films together, like Network and 12 Angry Men, um, is that it very much, uh, even though it's, it's tension packed and there's a lot of back and forth between interior, exterior, it's essentially a play, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he, uh, purposely did that before shooting most of his films, but especially this one, like did like basically rehearsed it like a play. There's a very interesting interview with Carol Kane about um, kind of seeing it from her perspective because she was in that s- smaller supporting role and seeing like they would literally like go to uh, a huge um, like conference room uh, and like block out the whole thing and like put like a divider down the room for exterior versus interior have like a big piece of furniture to represent the vault and 
like he 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 made sure that before they pressed record on anything that they had the entire thing planned out yeah. um and that like and i think that kind of adds to like that lived in feeling of the movie oh yeah <laughs> especially in the first 30 minutes when it's just starting it the way that they ping pong dialogue off of each other it's clearly like massively rehearsed yeah you can't just do that cold read like it's not gonna yeah. happen yeah there's no table read it's yeah. yeah yeah and they cut the fat a lot too and that probably helped mm. with that i mean there's not a wasted moment no. in, the, in the film so That's, yeah all that rehearsal probably winnowed it down to its essence i guess yeah that point. stood out to me is how how tight the film is there's just with some older films because of the i don't know i feel like attention spans were a little bit longer back then like movies mm-hmm. in the 80s and 70s like the, the, the kind of um languish in some shot this one no tight as a drum tight as a snare drum yep oh my god i forgot the okay uh, this is stupid <laughs> really, this is the last one um uh i'm i'm just looking through uh um all the trivia. Uh, the guy who delivers the pizza and says, "Like yeah. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, star. I'm a star." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> L- great moment in the film. Um, Spike Lee reused that actor for the pizza delivery person in Inside Man. Nice. Oh. Uh, and so, and not, and also the pizza box says Sal's famous pizzeria. Um, so it's, like, it's Spike Lee having a bit of oh, Easter egg there. fun. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to the yeah, chaser? Yeah, Straight time, time, 1978, directed by Ulu Grossbard, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman, Harry Dean Stanton, Gary Busey, uh, Teresa Russell. M, uh, M, wait, M, how do you say his name? M, Emmett Walsh? Yeah, it's a tongue twister. Yeah, that's a tongue twister. So, uh, I had never seen this movie before. I had no idea it existed. Um, but sometimes when we do these cycles, I kind of don't want to do well known stuff because it's kind of boring. Uh, so I just dug a little bit deeper and I found this movie and I was glad that I found it. Um, it is based on a book by an ex con. He was kind of a, it was just a con when this movie was getting shot. Uh, Edward Bunker, uh, a book called No Beast So Fierce, uh, came out a few years before this. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of, it's it's one of those movies where it's based on a novel based on somebody's life. So it's a little bit of a distance, sort of true to story thing. Have you guys seen this movie before? Ever heard it before? No. I hadn't either. Which is funny because I watched a lot of Dustin Hoffman in college, but this one, yeah, this one missed you. Off uh, my radar, this- yeah. It had a, a strange release, I think, is one of the problems, and it kind of has been lost a little bit because it did not perform very well at the box office. What did you guys think of it? Uh, yeah, no, it would. I was very excited to watch this movie because um, it seems like it it should be a '70s classic, even if it's kind of lost to time. But it does seem to have a a lot. It has gone through a lot of kind of bolstering and reappraisal over the years. Um, but um, I, it's hard to like watch that watch some any movie on the heels of Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really liked it. I, I it's definitely one where, that I want to revisit after spending some time away from it because once again, I the it, this this the whole true life element and the whole production history of the film yeah. is messy as hell. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. So uh, rather what, what you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thankfully I watched it before I watched Dog Day Afternoon or rewatched oh, Dog Day smart. Afternoon. Um, <laughs> no, I really I, I really enjoyed it, and I too would be interested to go back. I don't 
because there's a point at which it really turns. I like I didn't <laughs> I couldn't tell where this thing was going. I thought it was just an interesting character study of this guy and like where's the you know stranger than fiction moment. But there's a moment <laughs> that it really turns on. So I kind of like to go back again sometime and watch those first 45 minutes or so before the moment where this film takes its detour or uh i guess not detour but goes off in a different direction i i I did enjoy it and um yeah it's interesting where it turns though yes what so i'm curious because like i i one of the reasons that i'm in i'm eager to rewatch it is the specific piece of production drama um I guess it's pre-production drama. I don't know of how much of the film was actually directed by Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. It's hard to tell because the sources are like, Oh, he spent a few days. And then he basically was like, I can't do this. Then someone wrote 98. The assistant director, Jerry Zeismer was like, Oh, like he basically did like one shot in the prison. So it's kind of like, it's hard to tell, but I don't, it didn't sound like he lasted very long. I, cause um, I, the report I read was 10 weeks. What? Which is like a huge chunk it. of filming time. I don't know. You could yeah. film this whole movie in ten weeks. <laughs> right. <That's> amazing. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know when the uh, uh, Ulu. I don't know when he sort of popped on. I'm trying to figure out where. I, I think I saw it somewhere uh, when he took over. Um, but yeah, it was messy as hell. Like right. it's also like a weird production situation because like this is part of first artist production which is something that was like set up with um oh my god Paul Newman, Cindy Potier, Barbara Streisand, Steve McQueen uh and Hoffman were all part of this thing where it's basically you know you trade your upfront salary for artistic autonomy and that's what ended up sort of having this movie blow up when it was released lawsuits back and forth about mm. like how much autonomy was there did Warner Brothers come in and recut the movie uh, I think there's some quote about like uh, I think Hoffman says like only the first 20 minutes uh, was his film hmm. uh, it's like yeah it's crazy it's all over the place which is you know no wonder that it's kind of been lost because it just never it never had a splash I think when it came out right uh, and it was just easily forgotten you know a month later it was Gene Siskel's favorite movie of the year really what? yeah that's but, crazy. I mean, I that's be, that's before the zeitgeist of Siskel and Ebert. Um, yeah, I, I literally had never heard of this movie. And yeah. when I went to go look it up, I was like, this can't be real. <laughs> right. It's got like Dustin Hoffman, Gary Busey, what's going on? Kathy Bates shows up. I know. It's, yeah, it's a. Uh, Emma Walsh, too. It, huh? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the. Unlike Dog Day Afternoon, where it seemed like there was a good amount of distance between the criminal subject and the filmmakers <laughs> yeah like hoffman's and 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 michael mann who like we mentioned at the top of the show in the cold open had an uncredited uh version of the script um yeah like worked very closely with him like to the point where it reminded me of wh- how he discussed uh thief um, uh, right. the- well oh yeah there's thief for sure too yeah. to to keep it in Michael Mann's wheelhouse, but our episode about Bronson yes. and yeah. uh, uh, Tom Hardy's on again, friendship. off again, friendship with yeah. the guy he was playing, <laughs> the insane person he was playing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. There's, there's parts of that, that I think really help the film 
where it yeah. seems like you really get in like this internal space. Like there's so many movies about criminals where they you get to see that moment of of them like making that terrible decision and it's they they're kind of inscrutable but one of the special things about this movie is that scene where he breaks um where he's uh been just like shoved around manipulated by his parole officer and left for dead essentially even though he's gotten yeah. himself on uh you know on the right side of things uh and he just snaps in the car um with Emmett Walsh in the driver's seat and like that really seemed like there was there was a lot of consideration for like why recrimination is so common in our society um but at the same time it just feels like i don't know like he's our only three-dimensional character. Like, yeah, that's not that's not that far off, I would say. Right? And so yeah. that's the thing I was struggling with, especially because there's like so there's so many great actors in those supporting roles. Like I kept wanting to be like I don't know, I couldn't I couldn't quite tell what the film was going for with his like rage freak out on Gary Busey. Yeah. Um even though I don't like I don't know. I'm curious where, where did your empathies lie in the film? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe that's one of the things that makes the film oh, so compelling. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. This is like, it has that, uh, 1970s anti-hero like grittiness. Um, almost like I'm maybe like existentialist, maybe, uh, <laughs> sure. where it's like, I mean, the ending's literally perfection. I want to get caught. I mean, it's just like, it's so perfect. And it's so to me, if I, you know, I'm watching this film now and thinking about the seventies, which I did not live through. Um, to me, it's like, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, a really, really good example of sort of an ideology, a zeitgeist that was going on back then. Um, of sort of just, you know, uh, maybe you call it despair. What did Carter, Carter call it? Malaise <laughs> of like this sort of um, almost like cultural depression about everything, about mm-hmm. like nothing was going to get better. And you didn't really have a choice, you know, in, in this, in his case, uh, it almost seems like it's fate itself that is driving him back to make these stupid choices, mm-hmm. these dumb choices he does not need to make. He does it over and over and over again. And we, you know, you play the clip in the beginning of, of the show, but that's who he is. Right. And I think that there's a certain sort of, that's a very specific statement to make. It's not a happy statement, (laughs) uh, but it is a very strong thesis statement about who this character is. And I think, I don't, to me, that's what sticks with me uh, more than anything. It's like, it's a really bold artistic statement. Um, I don't know, Riley, what do you think? Well, yeah, it spends, you know, the first chunk, excuse me, of the movie um, devoted to making us interested in this, you know, character. <laughs> All this stuff seems to be happening to him. He seems to be trying to do the right thing. And it stores up a lot of that goodwill from the audience towards him, I'd yeah. say. Because, yeah, the second <laughs> half of the movie, uh, regardless of what drove him there he's pretty terrible i mean awful, awful he's, he's terrible to um trying to think of well, gary Busey. Gen, well yeah gary Busey, and is it jen the, the k 
character Jenny, I guess. Jenny. Jen, yep. And then, uh, well, and Harry Dean Stanton's character too, Jerry, or, I mean, (laughs) that scene, the clip that you played at the beginning, I mean, he's frustrated. And then moments later, (laughs) you know, that's the end for him. Well, I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, because in the scene where he shoots Gary Busey, I'm like, you're mad at him, but it's your fucking fault. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you stayed in the bank way longer than you should, or the, the watch store, the or the jewelry, jewelry store, store yeah. way longer right. than you needed to. And you're going to blame him for him getting scared when you screwed up. I mean, it's such yeah. like narcissistic bullshit behavior. It breaks bad, um, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's it's, it's <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. like <laughs> the original Walter White. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> but I think there's, there's a way you play that and you try and make it empathetic, or there's like the end of the shield. <laughs> it's just like no this is dark yeah this is dark and it's yeah. not going to go anywhere it's not going to go anywhere well uh and that's just his fate in life because right. of who he is and what he's done you know not and again not a happy statement but i think a very slightly honest one <laughs> and it's interesting to to watch because there there are few, there aren't that many movies with dustin hoffman where he's so cold-blooded right correct yeah um, uh, riley what do you think I don't, I don't know i didn't watch a lot of dustin hoffman back in the day oh yeah yeah you wrote you watched a lot no i mean he's usually like the underdog but not in a uh i mean in a likable way <laughs> you know with the yeah. exception i'm trying to think if there's even a i mean there's he's rizzo and midnight cowboy yeah, midnight cowboy yeah yeah i mean he's usually that central lead that is a generally likable character, yeah, even in his offbeat, you know, an offbeat type of character. But yeah. And that's yeah. why I think it's so important that like, it's, it's, it's a weird balance in this movie. Cause it, you do care about him at least early on, but it really stretches your, uh, your patience or your um, empathy. I guess that's, it, it really tests your empathy by the time you get to the end of this thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think one thing that's fascinating about uh, um, Bunker, who's the the, the real guy um, behind it uh, that it's based on, is that he comes from a Hollywood family himself. Oh, nice. uh, he he was born to a chorus girl mother who was in Busby Berkeley musicals um, and a studio grip father, so he has like that he knows what mate like he clearly like grew up around it like the idea of like being sensational and um like ready for camera and like d- narcissism essentially right yeah. <laughs> like oh, yeah so i mean not to armchair psychoanalyze but it feels like it has all these elements that it's uh it it, it it's 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 really hard to look away from because it's so um enthralling and yet that's also part of like the i don't know the like i don't know i just get like is this not in my stomach and yeah (laughs) and i i I, that's it it's it's impressive that they're able to do that um i don't know and it's also like it's also like compounded by the fact one of the reasons I was mentioning the idea of like Dustin Hoffman as a despicable person is because like there's because you know during Me Too he had allegations come out. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I remember that. You know, yeah. and so it's like, oh yeah, I can kind of see how he is a, a skis and harasser. <laughs> it, it's funny that like it, Bunker, the guy who wrote, is based on his life. Like 
I think the interesting part is that he wrote the book. It got published, I think, in like 72, 73. Mm-hmm. And then he robbed a bank afterwards, after it was published. <laughs> I didn't realize that <laughs> was after. after prison. <laughs> yeah. And then he got out, I think. I think the story was that he got out to like help with this movie a little bit as right. like a parole thing or something. Yeah. And so like it's Hoffman like, Jesus, you know, collaborating like, with him is just like feeding into that whole, mm-hmm. but the, we uh, say that, but it's not like it's like some self aggrandizing movie. Right. At the end of the day, it's like insanely depressing. True. Uh, and like the final shot is sort of like, maybe he thought that that was aggrandizing or maybe the, the director does, but it's not, <laughs> it's no. like, you know, uh it's like he's stuck forever being that person you know what i mean um you know no one learns anything the sign mantra <laughs> no hugs no nobody learns anything uh all right cool what do we uh we got some trivia yes you guys let's ready trivia. let's um, do it so it sounds like you've you've listened to at least one of our episodes from the season mm-hmm. riley but just to recap uh we're closing out with five movie descriptions that may or may not be real films um but all based on true stories so uh starting with number one uh this was a i i didn't actually write them so i'm gonna have some ums and ahs in between them this time i apologize (laughs) uh uh based on the infamous true story of the feral boy found in the uh rural district of avrian in southern france this film uh sold more than any other film in france um for the past decade the prior decade in 1970 and was also uh helmed by the very famous auteur behind several surreal um, masterpieces including the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie francois truffaut real Mm. or fake I'm going to say real. Mm. I'll say, uh, I'll just to be contrary, I'll say fake. Yeah. That one is real. Yes. Uh, there is a, a the, the Feral Boy movie does People exist. People love Feral Boy movies. That's I know. <laughs> yeah, they ate it up in France. And, you know, uh, even though it's not seen as one of Truffaut's best, um, especially because it's from, uh, you know, kind of an off uh period of his filmography um it's you know it's that sensational story i I remember hearing about that story like in middle school yeah it's like like, a famous historical thing right this kid like lived without any human contact like okay um coming up next uh historical drama horror film based on the true story of a 17th century roman catholic priest accused of witchcraft um Mm. also focusing on a nun that uh incited the accusations and also was accused of being sexually promiscuous real Mm. or fake rather you go first as a guest i'll say real on that one i'm say fake that one is real good work riley uh it's called the devils um by uh ken russell it was uh one of the films that in the 1970s had it was a part of a string of controversy with the mpaa because they wanted to give it an x rating but Mm. the uk did not um ultimately they did release it as an x rating um they agreed to release it only if the uk also um gave it an x rating and they did Mm. um Vanessa Redgrave as the sexually repressed nun in that film. Interesting. 
Uh, coming up next, 1979 American neo noir crime drama featuring James Woods and Ted Danson um, about uh, the infamous LAPD detectives Carl Hedinger and Ian Campbell who were kidnapped and driven to a nearby uh, crop of onions where one of the detectives was shot and killed while another narrowly escaped and was chased on foot by his kidnappers for multiple days. Real or fake? Rather anything. I want to say fake. I want to say fake too. That one's real again, guys. <laughs> Got you with the three in a row. I don't remember that. Uh, it's insane. I want to see this movie. It's called The Onion Fields. And uh, it sounds like uh, an onion article. Ted Danson was even doing, doing movies in 1979. Yeah. Or, or is that, uh, that was the incident. It was 1979. No, no, no. It's from the the film. It was 1979. <laughs> um, I, I have to assume that he's the one of the two detectives he's the detective yeah. that gets killed rather than the one that runs away <laughs> so james woods for another hour and a half i don't know we'll see <laughs> um, <laughs> okay uh next one we're at number four out of five in uh 1950 um this uh 1976 film takes place uh jacqueline Cato was a bride to be who's still living on her own with her elderly mother uh kept claiming hearing a quote phantom whistler who hid at night in the shrubbery or outside her house and uh while um her mother never believed her the police chief did though the police chief would never reveal the identity of the whistler and when the police chief died it turned out it was he himself that was catcalling her from the bushes real or um, fake rally go oh <laughs> fake fake yeah that one's fake but it would make a good movie <laughs> yeah, uh, was, was, he, was he catcalling me because he was in the <laughs> Yes. Uh, no, I think that that could definitely work, even though I just spoiled the ending. Um, <laughs> last but not least, uh, 1976 thriller uh, based on the 1946 Texarkana Moonlight Murders uh, featuring um, the uh, uh, B-movie proficiency of Charles B. Pierce, who was involved with the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre a few years prior. Um, these murders that uh, the film is based on um, involved a serial killer that attacked a small Texas town every 21 days and was not caught until his eighth and final victim. True or this false? Is- true it's the town of dread sundown oh my gosh okay that's yeah. the first time where you said it was true and knew the movie i was talking yeah, about i just watched this like i've watched this a few times i will oh, really i will yeah. also say true <laughs> <laughs> nice oh I, I didn't know i didn't know about this movie at all is it worth it's worth watching i take it dan uh <laughs> i wouldn't say that i mean if you're a horse <laughs> you've seen it a few times <laughs> I mean, I love horror films, so it's like yeah, if you yeah, like yeah. horror films and that kind of stuff, it it's dated as hell, but sure. uh, it's fun. It's a fun watch. It sounds fun. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's also what they quoted it in uh, Scream. Uh, she's oh, like really? when just walking around and everybody's out because of curfew. She goes, it's like the town of dread sundown. Oh, That's actually how I found out about the movie. <laughs> nice, uh, nice. But yeah, it's like, a, it's like an old sort of like culty kind of classic uh, yeah. horror film. Cool, cool, cool. Well, without, uh, I mean, I feel like 
our general consensus, right, is that uh, the 70s were pretty depressing. Really um, sad. Even, sad and that's why they had some of the best films, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, sad, sad art is good art, always. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Or having us. Thanks so much for joining well, us, for Riley. Us. I think that's the right way yeah. of saying that. Thanks for having us, Riley. Twist. <laughs> Film Chase has been Riley's show all along. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, so anyway, we, uh, yeah, thanks for, for thanks for being here. And then um, our final episode of this cycle is going to be uh, In Cold Blood and Compulsion, which I've never seen. Uh, so that'll be coming up next. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.